Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for all the rain in this part of the country, Father, we know we need it, and uh, you have withheld it for a time, and now you've restored it, at least for a time, and Father, we uh, trust in your wisdom in all these things, and thank you, Father, for the provision. We thank you, Father, that uh, even in, in spite of all the weather, we're here in a co- uh, quiet and, and warm place, a comfortable place, a place where we can sit quietly with the word on our laps and give thought to what you've put in this gospel for us, Father. And we thank you, Father, for the, the lessons of John's gospel, the power of it, the pictures of it uh, that are in it. We thank you, Father, for the diligence that we have uh, found in being here regularly and listening to this and studying. Father, we also ask that you would uh, impress upon our hearts perhaps a person or a family member or a friend, someone who doesn't understand and believe the things that we know so well, someone who has uh, dismissed the Word of God as, as something that has no value for them, or perhaps they've never seen it to begin with. Father, we ask that you would let us become your instrument, your ambassador, your, your representative before those people. And that John's gospel would be planted in our hearts so that we would have the means to communicate the truth of these things, more so than we had before, so that we might see the work of God in our hearts through this opportunity and know that our uh, time in this class was divinely appointed and served a greater purpose. And let us finish tonight, Father, with equal fervor and equal interest and to see what you have for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, the dark period of Jesus' death and burial has come to an end. So as we open our Bibles to chapter 20 in John's Gospel, we will see now the resurrection of Christ and the days and weeks that follow his resurrection. And in keeping with John's light, dark motif, chapter 20 opens with a new day dawning and Christ risen. Verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark And saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Part of what I'm going to try to do for us tonight is keep all the actors straight and the groupings and the order of events. And we'll be consulting the other Gospels as we do occasionally in order to help us do that. So we start with two groups of women on the first day of the week. John mentions Mary Magdalene arriving first, but the other Gospel writers mention other women. So besides Magdalene, we'll find that there's also Mary, the mother of James, as she's described in the other Gospels, and Salome, who is Mary's sister and also John's mother the Apostle John, you notice I said Mary, the mother of James, that is the same Mary who gave birth to Jesus. And yet you notice she's not identified in the Gospels as the mother of Jesus. She's identified as the mother of James. The overemphasis of Mary as the mother of Jesus came much later as a result of teaching from principally the Catholic Church. But in the early church, Mary was no more special than any other disciple, nor should she be. As Jesus himself said concerning Mary in Luke eleven twenty seven. while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice to him and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. You notice that Jesus specifically contradicts the notion That the woman that God selected to bear Jesus was blessed merely by the fact that she had that opportunity. Jesus uses the very strong phrase in the Greek, on the contrary, not so. In other words, you are blessed when you hear and observe the word of God, not because of how God chooses to use your body as some instrument. So the gospel writers list Mary as merely the mother of James. And James, you may remember, is the half brother of Jesus, the author of one of the letters in the New Testament. 
By the way, in that letter, James himself refused to identify himself as the brother of Jesus. For the very same reason, once Jesus's deity was understood by all of these people, then no disciple would dare to have claimed a privileged earthly relationship to God other than the one that we all know by faith alone. For that's the only one that matters. Luke also says, and going back to the events, Luke says there were also women present beyond the ones I just mentioned, but he never names them in the text. So in your mind's eye, you have to imagine one visit by Mary Magdalene and a second group of women of some number coming in a second round of visits. Interestingly, no man goes to the tomb initially. And you and I can make a lot of that detail, perhaps too much of that detail, because in fact, in that day, this would have been typical. Jesus's body was prepared in haste on the day he died on Thursday. And so these women are returning as soon as was possible so that they can anoint him properly in burial. And that was typically the role of women to do such work. So it's not surprising that a man wouldn't run back to the tomb in this way. It's not a a suggestion that men cared less for Jesus than the women did. So the women go to the tomb on the first day of the week, which, as we know, is Sunday. In Jewish reckoning of time, Sunday began at sundown on Saturday at nightfall. In fact, the way they counted nightfall was the moment that the first three stars in the sky could be counted. You technically had reached nightfall. So the women would have been prevented from visiting the tomb from the time of Christ's burial on Thursday afternoon because of those back to back Sabbaths that we described last week. Friday was a high Sabbath because of the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then Saturday was the normal Sabbath of the week. So you had two Sabbaths back to back that interrupted the week in such a way that from Thursday night all the way until dawn on Sunday, no one could do work and going to a tomb or preparing a body for burial was considered work. So by the way God orchestrated the events of that week, it required that no one go to the tomb for the time Jesus's body was in the tomb. An interesting detail. Once the sun set on Saturday, well, they would have been free to go. But now you've got the problem of night. And it would not have been safe or prudent for a group of women to visit a tomb in the middle of the night. So John says Mary Magdalene left for the tomb early, but while it was still dark. And the synoptic gospels all say that Mary and the other women arrived at the tomb just as dawn began. So you get the sense that they timed their departure to allow the time to get to the tomb so they'd be there right at the time of dawn. Dawn in Jewish reckoning is the moment light first appears on the horizon, but before sunrise. That's still considered part of the night. So Jesus is out of the grave before sunrise. So he is out before day. That's how we got the three days and three nights from last week. But there's still light enough in the sky for the woman to be at the tomb and visit. I made all the things connect for you. Okay. by the way, in Israel, light in the sky can come as early as 4 a.m., depending on the sky conditions. So it can be there very early. Now, it's interesting to consider what the women were planning to do when they arrived. In fact, in Mark's gospel, they're quoted as wondering who's going to move the stone. The stone was rolled over the entrance. It would have been way too heavy for women to push out of the way. So we're not quite clear what they were expecting, but nonetheless, they went anyway. Now, you could explain their thinking as hope against hope. They didn't have a plan. They just hoped something would happen when they got there. And as the scene plays out, you can tell they're not expecting to find the stone rolled away, much less to find Jesus gone. That's all surprising to them. But that makes their dedication to this task all the more remarkable. They had a desperate desire to minister to the Lord, and they're willing to go even when, from what they could understand, the whole thing looked hopeless and pointless. They give us an example of the opportunities that obedience and dedication can create. When you follow the Lord in spite of fear or uncertainty or the seeming impossibility of what you're going to go do, of what lies ahead, well, then you give the Lord opportunity to show you a miracle in the process. These women were expecting to encounter a great barrier that they had no concept they were going to cross. How were they going to get past that stone? But they go nonetheless, and consequently, they were privileged to be the first to see proof of the resurrection because of their willingness to go. According to John, Mary Magdalene goes on her own before the other women. Much to her surprise, the stones rolled away. We're talking here about a disc, almost like a wheel. They would cut a wheel out of stone, almost as tall as I am, and they would cut a groove in the ground in front of the opening to the tomb so that this stone can be rolled back and forth in the groove, typically by several large men, usually with a fulcrum to help push it along. Certainly not something two women by themselves could do. Matthew tells us that angels opened the tomb, and when they appeared to do so, the men who had been stationed to guard the tomb literally fell as if dead. They went into a stiff trance on the ground in in the face of these angels. Scared stiff is literally what happened to them. 
John says Magdalene left at once after she saw the tomb open and the body gone and left to go report it. She never goes into the tomb. She assumes the body's been stolen and she goes back to tell the apostles. Now, while she's running back to tell the apostles what she's seen, the second group of women arrive at the tomb and they see the stone moved away as well. Now, according to the other gospel writers, those women investigate a little further than Mary Magdalene was willing to do. They actually go in. And once they go in, one of the angels is in the tomb and they encounter that angel. The angel explains to those women what's going on, at least at some level, and then gives the women instructions to go back and tell the other 11 disciples what you've seen. And then interestingly, they also tell the women, tell the disciples to get up and go to the Galilee and meet Jesus there as Jesus has told them he will do. Eventually, all the women who've gone to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other group, they all meet up again back where the disciples are huddled in the city of Jerusalem. And collectively, they deliver the good news to the disciples. According to the Gospels, they all agree the tomb is empty. Jesus's body is not there. And yet all 11 of the disciples, and I say 11 because obviously Judas Iscariot's not with them anymore. All 11 refused to accept their reports, perhaps because they were women. Because in that day, women were considered untrustworthy witnesses. But whatever the cause, they think the women are nuts. So Peter and John run back to the tomb at this point to see for themselves. Now, John says he arrived first, highlighting the fact that he can run faster than Peter. <laughs> Once again, you notice Peter's always the subject of a bit of a ribbing from John throughout his gospel. But John doesn't go in. John gets there first, but he stops. He witnesses only through the door. Some linen wrappings on the ground. Peter, though, he gets there second, but he just keeps running. He goes right into the tomb. He finds only these body coverings as well, but he sees more of the detail. And what he notices in particular is that you have the linen wrappings that went around the body. And the thing you have to understand is it's not like a mummy where you start with one piece of linen and just keep wrapping. It's small strips that are wrapped around the body and the spices help hold it all to the body. You have all of that from the body in one place. And then he says in another part of the tomb, what he means is separate from the other. You find the head wrapping and it's all round up. And he doesn't mean like you ball up something and throw it away. He means it's still wound as if it were around a head. The head's just not in it. So what we're seeing is that Jesus resurrected through the wrapping, as opposed to somebody unwinding him like they did in the case of Lazarus, indicating that there's something different going on in his body. Clearly, the Lord's resurrected state is one in which his body is no longer bound by physics in the same way that it was before he died. And we'll see more evidence of this later in this gospel tonight. So that becomes evidence not only that his body's not there, but of how it disappeared, that it disappeared through the wrappings. The resurrection of Christ consisted of the return of Christ's spirit to his physical body, and in that process, a restoration of life to that same physical body. That's what we mean when we say the resurrection of Christ. A body that was literally dead came back to life after three days and a spirit that had been out of the body for a while and came back to it, reanimating it, so to speak, putting it back into a, a condition of life. Jesus was, as we've already covered in the gospel, he was all man, even as he was all God. He had a sinless body. And when his body died on the cross, his body was no less dead than when you and I suffered death. It's not like he had some special, less than fully dead because he's God kind of state. He was dead as a doornail. His body was. The similarities between our death and Christ's death ends there. And in Christ's case, after the body died, it did not decay, even in the slightest. According to Psalm 1610, Jesus was promised by the Father for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, the psalmist wrote. So Christ's body was dead, but it never deteriorated even in the slightest. Why? Is this just some kind of trick? Is it because he didn't die as much as you and I do? No, it's more fundamental than that. The deterioration process of bodies, both the one you have now while it's still alive, by the way, if you haven't noticed, you're getting worse every day, that's... That's how it works. God has put us under a curse and our bodies go from dust to dust, right? So it's a deterioration process that begins long before you're dead. As you've heard me say before, being really, really healthy is just the slowest possible way to die. <laughs> the deterioration process itself is something God instituted as a result of the sin in the garden. 
It's the result of the curse that he put upon the earth as a result of Adam's sin. Remember in Genesis 3:19, God spoke and said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. That pronouncement brought about physical death right there. But Jesus did not share in Adam's sin. Jesus, being a virgin birth, did not come into the world in the way of Adam. He didn't inherit the sin of his father. Therefore, he does not live under a curse. You know, the only reason there's a curse on the earth is because of the sin that brought it about. Jesus came into the world with no sin. Therefore, he's not under the curse. So though he was dead, his body was not decaying back to dust. It was not under that penalty, which is why we also said he wouldn't have died except that he chose to. The only reason he died on that cross, as we discussed last week, is because he gave up his spirit. In Luke 23, 46, you find him saying he commits his spirit into the Father's hand. And then, of course, remember the statement Jesus spoke earlier in this gospel in John 10. I'm sure you remember this. 17 through 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, But I lay it down on my own initiative and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He wasn't just speaking about his voluntary walk to the cross. He was literally talking about the manner of his death. He was saying, I die when I choose to die and nothing takes my life from me for I'm not under the curse that sin requires. Christ's body sat in that tomb without decay while his spirit spent three days in the depths of the earth, we're told, greeting the Old Testament saints who were waiting there for him. And preaching to the souls of those held under judgment in Hades. That's what we hear from Paul's letters. He spends those three days separated from his body. And during the third evening, which in our calendar week would be the evening of Saturday night. During that evening, Christ resurrected. His spirit returned into his body. His body came back to life, moved out of the coverings in some way we wouldn't quite understand, right? Miraculously. And he stands up and goes wherever he goes. Now, interestingly, he goes back to his original body because his body was suitable since it was not corrupted by sin. Resurrection, though, for you and I, will have to be different. Our spirit will be resurrected, but in an entirely new body, Scripture says, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Our present physical bodies are corrupted by sin, and they are under the curse as a result, so they must go back to dust, and he has no intention to reconstitute you from the dust of your original form. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, don't think so narrowly. God is not limited by the fact that he created you in this form so that he can't come up with a new one later. In fact, quite the opposite. If he can make stars and the sun and fish and beasts and all these different things, then he can make a totally new you when the day comes in terms of your physical body. And he will do so. The curse requires our current body goes into the ground. God replaces at the rapture that body with a new one at the resurrection. And so back to the story. Peter and John see the tomb empty. They then return to their homes in the city. They've seen evidence just as the Lord has promised. They've heard the testimony of the women who preceded them, and they heard the instructions they're supposed to go to the Galilee. So what do you think they do? Despite all these signs and instructions, they refuse to accept that Jesus is alive again. They just think someone's moved the body. So now begins a series of appearances in which the resurrected Christ will go to great lengths to provoke belief and obedience in these men. And appropriately, he begins that work through the faithful women who had attended to him all along. John 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So back to the chronology. Last time I visited the women, they were back in Jerusalem talking to the men about what they had seen. After that meeting, Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb. 
And it makes sense, right? In her grief, she's looking for a place to mourn, and the empty tomb was as good a place as any. Plus, she's still mystified about what's happened to Christ. This time, though, she looks in and actually enters the tomb, and now she sees those angels. This time she sees both of the angels, unlike in the earlier group of women. They only saw one of them. She sees both. It's kind of like the Lord's holding an open house here at Jesus' tomb, and the angels are just the reception party for whoever comes by. Apparently, Mary is unaware that these two were angels. She sees them strictly as just young men at first. When they ask her why she's weeping, she says, I'm looking for the body. But before they answer, then the Lord appears. This is the first recorded appearance of the resurrected Jesus to anyone. And the fact that the first eyewitness to Jesus's resurrection was a woman and a woman with a history of prostitution, no less, that detail argues for the authenticity of the gospel accounts. Because a woman would have been a very unlikely and unwise choice for your first witness if you were in the business of fraudulently creating stories or myths. Because in that day, a woman as your witness made your story less believable, not more believable, because of the culture's bias against them. The author would only have included this kind of a detail in his story if it's truly the way it happened. Because to do otherwise is to lower the credibility of your story. The Lord uses supposedly foolish things to shame the wise. And the fact that Mary would be the first eyewitness is in line with that methodology. As with the angels, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus at first. I love the fact that she thinks he's the gardener. Only after she asks him a question and he answers, does she recognize this to be Jesus? And then she calls him Rabbani. The fact that Mary and others don't immediately recognize Jesus tells us a little about his post-resurrection appearance, his form. We have to assume he appears differently. Otherwise, we can't understand why they're all having so much trouble recognizing him. Arnold Fruchenbaum suggests this would be like two friends who haven't seen each other for decades. And then out of the blue, they meet each other somewhere, like at the market or whatever. And at first, they don't recognize each other. But after a moment, they talk. They, the recognition sort of dawns on them. Now, in that case, age would account for the change in appearance. In this case, it's his resurrected form that has somehow produced physical changes that leave him appearing differently. He's not the guy they saw before. It's the same person, but his appearance is different in some substantial way. This is about his physical form being such that you could look upon him and think, oh, it's just the gardener. Not a gardener that's gotten whipped, just a gardener, <laughs> right? But not Jesus. That's what's interesting. And at this point, Jesus speaks to her. And as he speaks to her, she begins to understand who this person is. So it's the voice that catches her attention, it would seem. And at that point, she attempts to embrace Jesus, which would have been the natural thing, right? She's excited to see him. Now, in my English translation, which I read from, it says, stop clinging to me. But that's not the accurate translation from the Greek. In Greek, what he literally said is, touch me not. So Mary is never allowed to touch Jesus at this moment. The reason that Jesus forbids Mary from touching him is because he says he has not yet ascended to the Father. What he's talking about is the ascension that he must perform to cleanse the tabernacle in heaven with his own blood. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus cleansed the tabernacle, speaking of the heavenly one, the one that is in heaven now, with his blood as a part of the atoning work on the cross. The Jewish tabernacle that the Jews built in the desert and that later became the temple in Jerusalem, that building on earth, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, is patterned after the one that God inhabits in heaven. And so it's very much like when you build a big new construction project and before they finish the building of the construction project, the architectural firm will make one of those cute little models where everything looks really lifelike, but the people are this big and there's little cars on the road and, and it's so that you can see the finished work before it begins but you would never mistake the real one for the model. I mean, there's a clear difference between the two. You can't live in the model, right? You, you understand the difference. In the same way, you ought to look at the tabernacle that Israel had and the temple that came after it as a little model of the glory of what's present in the heavenly. And that heavenly tabernacle is very much like the one we have on earth, at least in terms of the pattern, because we're told it's that way. And in that heavenly tabernacle was the need for Blood to be used to cleanse the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, just as the high priest of Israel was told to do under their law. Now, for some, that creates a dilemma because they ask, well, why would the tabernacle in heaven need to be cleansed of sin? Well, in Ezekiel, we're told that the very first sin in all creation happened in that place. In Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve, speaking of Satan, 
He says, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, which is a term for Satan, and say to him, thus says the Lord, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your sockets and settings was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were, and listen to this, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Are you getting any bells? The covering cherub. You were the anointing cherub who covers, speaking of the mercy seat, covering the mercy seat. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, referring to Zion in heaven. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until... Unrighteousness was found in you by the abundance of your trade, your occupation, that is covering the mercy seat. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So the first sin committed by Satan happened in the role of Covering cherub. He was literally on the mercy seat. What was underneath the covering wings of the cherubs on the mercy seat? What occupied the space underneath the wings in the earthly tabernacle? The Shekinah glory of God. So in the heavenly, you would imagine these cherubs and Satan being one of them actually protected the glory of God in heaven. He was as close to God as he could get. Perhaps that's why his pride led him to think he could replace God. And in sin, he brought sin to that place. Therefore, it required Christ's blood to cleanse that place. In the law, the high priest was told to go once a year into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, and to cleanse it with blood. And on that day, no one was allowed to touch the high priest until he had completed the work on the Day of Atonement. Otherwise, he would be made unclean. That annual cleansing by the high priest in the Jewish tabernacle pictured the higher cleansing that would come through Christ at his death. And since this is the day in which he will make atoning sacrifice, this is his Day of Atonement, No one can touch him today, no more than anyone can touch the high priest. He cannot be made unclean. He's about to enter the holiest place in all creation. So here Jesus tells Mary, you can't touch me because I'm the high priest. I've yet to ascend to my father and complete my atoning work. We therefore must conclude at some point after this moment, Jesus ascended, brought his own physical blood into the tabernacle and performed the cleansing ritual. Notice Jesus tells Mary to report this back to the brethren, tell them that I ascend to the father. Only after he does this, then will he make any further appearances to the disciples. And you'll see in the later visits, the disciples are able to touch Jesus. Famously, Thomas does. So between this moment and the later appearances, he will go up to heaven and come back down, having done that work. Now, Mary returns to the disciples a second time. So this is Mary Magdalene's second trip back to the disciples. This time, she declares that she's personally seen the risen Lord. She tells them, by the way, he said, you're supposed to be in Galilee right now. John does not record disciples' response to Mary in this second visit. You notice? But if I go to Mark again, I find the disciples flatly rejecting Mary's testimony. Once again, they do not accept the possibility that Jesus has resurrected. And once again, they disobey the Lord's instructions. They do not leave the city. Now, at this point in John's narrative, he jumps to the final appearance of Jesus in Jerusalem. But the other Gospels give us several more appearances between the two events, all in an effort being done to convince the disciples to believe. And I'm just summarizing for you here. In Matthew 28, we're told that the second group of women encounter the risen Lord in their own moment. And in that encounter, those women take hold of Jesus' feet and they worship him. Matthew 28, 10 Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. He gives the second group of women the same instructions. They're touching his feet, though. You notice they're okay doing that. The next appearance after that is to the two disciples leaving the city on the road to Emmaus. Luke records that one. Those two men are not part of the eleven. One of them is named Cleopas. And in the course of that encounter, Jesus initially scolds them for not believing in the resurrection because they didn't believe it either. Then they recognize Jesus and then they return back to Jerusalem to report what they had seen to the eleven. But Mark 16 says the report of the two witnesses did not convince the other eleven. Now, why do you suppose the Lord's working so hard to convince the eleven that he is truly risen, but he's doing it through other witnesses? I think he's giving these men a memorable lesson in how difficult it can be 
to convince others of the truth of Jesus' resurrection, even when the one testifying is an eyewitness. The eleven are going to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection eventually. And then they have this formidable task of convincing the world that their story is true. And even though they are eyewitnesses, that in and of itself is not going to be convincing. They can't walk around and say, I saw it, believe me. If that worked, they only have to think back to their own experience and remember, oh yeah, that happened like five times and I didn't get it. Why would they believe me? The only thing, according to Scripture, that convinces someone that Jesus is Lord is the Word of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So as these men go out to spread the gospel to others, they might have been tempted to rely on their own powers of persuasion or their own personal testimonies to get that word across, but they would only have had to think back to these moments in their own experience to know that their testimony is not a substitute for the power of the word of God. That's why they write the New Testament. That's why God uses them to author scripture, because it's that testimony in the power of the spirit, in the form of scripture, that actually does that work. Not their personal character or testimony as an individual. So having refused to believe the multiple reports, now it requires the Lord to appear before the eleven. He begins with Peter. Here again, this is something John does not cover in his gospel. But the next appearance, according to Luke, and Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 15, is that the Lord appears to Peter individually, just he and Peter. Luke reports that the appearance to Peter happened at about the same time as the appearance of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In fact, Luke says that the two disciples returning from Emmaus found the eleven, including Peter, in the midst of discussing Peter's experience in seeing the Lord. So here's Peter trying to convince the ten. The other two show up to help, and the others still won't believe. Now, we know nothing more about Peter seeing Christ appear. But the fact that Jesus chose to appear to Peter before the others reminds us Peter was the leader that Jesus appointed for the early church. Before he's going to be able to lead anyone, though, Peter has to be restored in his position. And he has to be restored before God and before men. Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times. In Luke's gospel, there was another piece Jesus said we didn't hear in John's. In Luke 22:31, he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He all but implies he would fail, but then that he would turn back. So Jesus's personal appearance before Peter, I believe, is a part of that restoration process. The Lord, in his willingness to appear privately to Peter, would have been a reassurance to the apostle that the Lord still approved of him despite his denials. And his decision to appear to Peter before he does so to the rest of the eleven would also reaffirm or cement Peter's role as leader within that group. But there's still this issue of restoring Peter before the men. I wonder if Peter's testimony of having seen Jesus in a private appearing was unconvincing to the rest of the eleven because the whole story seemed a little too convenient. Because how convenient that the one who denied Christ publicly should have a private audience with Christ in which he was assured that he would still lead the church. Sounds awful suspicious, doesn't it, if you're one of the other ten? Whatever the reason, Peter couldn't convince them, so another visit by Jesus is required. So sometime after Peter's encounter, the eleven are still locked in that room, and all of these appearances and everything I've described so far is all happening on Sunday. It's all the same day. The eleven are still in the room in Jerusalem in fear, and now you can actually see a bit of the wisdom on why they need to go to the Galilee. They're so fearful, they won't leave the house. How are they going to do any good if they're going to remain locked up? Who are they going to witness to? They're not even willing to go outside. So... Despite seeing an empty tomb, despite seeing the bandages, hearing the reports of angels, of eyewitnesses who've seen Jesus' appearance, Peter himself included, nonetheless, they refuse to accept the resurrection as a group. So because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus makes a personal appearance before them. John 20, 19 and 20, he says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So late on Sunday afternoon, this is, as I said, the, still the same day, Jesus makes his fifth appearance. Now, there's only ten men here. You'll learn later that Thomas isn't with them. And despite the door being locked, he appears. 
That's another proof to us that his body is different in some respect. He doesn't he's not bound by walls. He's, he's able to show up on demand. And he's also not apparently bound by space and time because he can be on a road to, uh, to Emmaus with two men, disappear and show up again in Jerusalem a second later. So his first greeting is peace be with you. Shalom. And it's a greeting that the disciples repeat commonly in their letters. He is calming them down in a moment when they would have otherwise been shocked to see somebody like him appear in the room out of nowhere. Right. In Luke's gospel, we're told the group was terrified. They didn't know it was Jesus at first. They thought it was a spirit or a ghost or apparition or something. Despite standing there in the flesh, they don't accept it as literally a human being. They see it as something supernatural. Their collective response to that moment initially is proof of the problem right there. There wasn't the thought in their brain that Jesus could live again. They're bound by what they could accept in terms of nature. And in nature, dead things don't come back to life. They weren't willing to consider God's supernatural power to transcend flesh, time and space. And so John's narrative picks up with Jesus showing his body markings to these men. And that is the way they come to know him as Jesus. Once they understand, that's what he's doing. What he's saying is, you don't recognize me, but do you recognize this and this? And remember when they did this? Now do you recognize me? And that's what's bringing them into recognition. In Luke's gospel, we learn that Jesus had to go a step further to convince them. He asks for a piece of fish and eats it in front of them, which was the proof that they needed that he was truly alive, that he was a physical being. I think it's instructive to realize just how hard it was for people to believe in resurrection. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, and they will not believe even if someone should be raised from the dead. There's a barrier to belief, and it's not going to be crossed by signs and wonders. So the fact that Christ's body still bore the markings of the crucifixion proves that the torture of the cross did not take his life. Because otherwise, how could you explain that his body could live on again with the same holes in his body, with all the same marks? If those were fatal marks, then they would have to have been healed up before he could live again. The point is they weren't fatal because he had to give up his spirit to be dead. I also wonder, by the way, if the holes were left in his body, at least for a time, because it would be by that means that the blood would be poured out into the temple and it would be used to, to cleanse it. He had to have a way to get the blood out of his body. In Israel, the high priest drained blood from the animal sacrifice at the altar, then put it in a basin or a bowl, carried it into the Holy of Holies, and then sprinkled it on the mercy seat. So perhaps Jesus performed the work in a similar manner, but using his physical body as the source of that blood, then carried it in and sprinkled it in the Holy of Holies. John's portrayal shows the extent to which Jesus had to go to bring these men to the point of acceptance. According to Mark's gospel, this encounter is also the moment for Jesus' strongest rebuke in all of the gospel accounts to these men. This is what he says in Mark 16:14. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen after he had risen. This is exactly the problem. They were hard-hearted. Hard-heartedness in the Bible refers to the difficulty with which a person accepts spiritual truth. So unbelievers by their nature, are hard-hearted. People who are not saved by faith in Jesus Christ, they remain so hard-hearted until and unless the Lord opens their heart by the Spirit. Otherwise, they will remain in their unbelief. They will repeatedly reject the truth of the gospel because they are spiritually dead, Scripture says, and therefore they are unable to consider the message of the gospel. So hard-heartedness is the natural state of an unbeliever. Until such time as God changes the heart. All of us have been through that process. All of us were at a time in our past an unbeliever. And if we are a believer today, it's only because there was a moment in our past when God changed our heart from hard-heartedness to receptiveness. But believers can also act in a hard-hearted way. Pride, arrogance, stubbornness, anger, bitterness, apathy, laziness, and the like can conspire to block spiritual truth from reaching a believer's heart. Bible teachers and pastors, speaking from a personal point of view, routinely encounter believers who have shut down to new truth. They only seem interested in hearing someone affirm what they already believe, and they'll argue against anything different. The only way to penetrate that kind of hard-heartedness is by the sword of the Spirit, by the Word, cutting into the soul. And as an aside, that's why it's a policy of verse-by-verse ministry, and my personal policy, never to engage in debate over the meaning of Scripture. As a ministry, we strive to present an honest view, an accurate view, well supported by the text of Scripture. And at the same time, we know we err 
occasionally in our interpretation, because all teaching and all ministers will err at times, right? And therefore, as a ministry, we honestly remain open to critique. We consider our feedback carefully in the light of Scripture. Opinion doesn't count. I want to see Scripture, but we take that into account. And we gladly answer sincere questions and explain our reasoning from Scripture. But we never debate the unteachable. There's no point. We teach those who have ears to hear and remain open to what God is prepared to deliver by his word. And we are teachable in like manner. We trust in the Lord, though, to open closed hearts and we leave it to him to do that. And I'll tell you, as a teacher, you can tell the difference between someone who has a sincere curiosity and interest and is trying to work through an issue and and take good counsel from the person who just wants you to believe what they think and they're determined to prove themselves right. That moment is one I walk away from. You know the old saying about trying to teach a pig to sing? It won't happen and you make the pig unhappy. And that's not to consider that the people I talk with are pigs. <laughs> to be fair, there's times when it's the other way around, right? And someone's view is right and I'm wrong. And the goal in, in teaching is to always remain teachable because I've always said the moment you stop being teachable, you're useless to God. But it's really easy to tell really quickly if someone is saying, I don't get it, but I think you can help me, versus someone who's saying, ooh, you said something I don't like. Usually those conversations work their way out pretty quickly. All right, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Well, so he's rebuked them. And then he reiterates, Be at peace. I think that's really nice. There's a saying in corporate culture about if you're going to critique someone, you're supposed to deliver good news, then deliver the bad news, and then deliver some good news on the other end. The point is, you put the bad news right in the middle. And Jesus follows that model. Peace be with you. You guys suck. Peace be with you. <laughs> My words, but you get the point. He rebukes them. He reinstates them by saying peace. In other words, the fact that I'm so un- unhappy with what you've been doing does not lessen the peace with which you have by my sacrifice, the peace of God, the reconciliation, it's still available to you. All right? You've been saved by God's grace. You're going to be forever at peace. But you've got a mission, and the Father sent me into the world, so now I send you in the same way. And that's an important statement. He says, as I was sent, you are being sent. So how was Christ sent? Well, he was sent, for example, with a message of truth, and he was sent with power to validate the message, and he was sent to a skeptical and hostile audience. Well, all of those same factors are true. These guys will be apostles, so they'll be sent with a message, that of the kingdom. They'll be sent with miraculous powers that come with their office, the ability to do things that validate their authority and their message. And then, like Christ, they're going to go to a group of people who doubt, disbelieve, and react in anger. Those men can't fulfill that mission if they're unwilling to face the dangers that serving the Lord requires, because men prefer the darkness, we're told, over the light. They they reject the light because it exposes their evil deeds, John said. And friends, you cannot be used by God to invade spiritual darkness if you're afraid to walk into the shadows. And these guys were afraid to step out of this place. And Jesus says, you need to go as I went. Now, at this point, he does something really curious. He breathes on the ten men and declares they should receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some would ask, is this the moment that these men actually receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, on the contrary, you and I can know that this cannot be that moment because of two reasons. First, we see these same men receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. So if they'd already possessed it here, then there'd be no additional indwelling required later. Secondly, any indwelling of the Spirit prior to Pentecost would have violated the purpose of the feast. And by that I mean this. Pentecost of Acts 2 is the fulfillment of the feast of Pentecost given to the nation of Israel. The Jewish feast of Pentecost, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, commemorates the giving of the law to Israel at the mountain of Sinai. When they were 50 days out of Egypt, they were given the law written on stone. That law written on stone, given 50 days later, after the Passover, is the beginning of the Feast of Pentecost. But the whole feast given to Israel pictures the giving of the law written on hearts to the church, which happens 50 days after the Passover of Christ on the cross, which is the fulfillment of Passover, right? So exactly 50 days after Christ fulfills Passover on the day of Passover, the Lord delivers a law to his people written on their hearts on the day of Pentecost. So that giving of the law is the fulfillment of Pentecost. Coming by way of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment. So, friends, if Jesus had to die exactly on the day of Passover in order to fulfill that feast, 
so must the indwelling of the spirit happen on its proper feast day. And therefore, the spirit could not come upon these disciples in the moment of John 20. It had to wait for the Pentecostal moment, just like it had to for all believers. So if that's true, then what was being accomplished when Jesus breathes on these guys? Well, it helps to remember that the word for breath in Hebrew is the same word used at times for spirit. So breath or air is used as a picture of the spirit, just as it was in John 3. Therefore, what Jesus is doing is he's using this gesture to promise things to come for them, specifically the spirit. He commissions these men, tells them, take my place. And he uses his breath as a symbolic gesture of the coming arrival of the Holy Spirit, who will empower them for that mission at Pentecost. Lastly, the Lord designates these men with apostolic authority. Jesus gives them this conditional command. He says, if you forgive someone, they will be forgiven. Now, friends, we know the power to forgive is God's alone, and it comes solely on basis of belief in the gospel. Luke 5:20. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, well, why are you reasoning in your heart? What's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Notice Jesus didn't say to the disciples that they will decide who will be forgiven by God. Jesus is saying the outcome of their ministry determines who will be saved versus who will not be saved. These men will use the same basis for determining forgiveness as Jesus did. What was the basis on which Jesus could say to these men, in the case of the paralytic, that he was saved, his faith. What will be the disciples' means by which they can declare to someone, your sins have been forgiven you? Their faith. How can they be so sure? Because that's the truth of the gospel. So to paraphrase Jesus, this is what he said to them. When you preach the gospel and someone receives it, you can assure that person that God has forgiven them because of their faith. What you declare forgiven is truly forgiven on the basis of the gospel, in other words. And then, likewise, Jesus is saying, when someone rejects the gospel, you can assure them they remain in their sins. Not because of their authority, but because of their understanding on what basis God forgives and saves. And they, being his messenger, can give the same assurances to someone who receives the gospel as Jesus did personally when he was on the earth. Likewise, they can give the same judgment against those who fail to believe as Jesus did when he was on the earth. This statement may seem obvious to us now, you know, the fact that if you believe, you're saved. But it's only become obvious because we've watched it at work over centuries of evangelism. But at the beginning of the church, think about what these guys would have had in their head. They would have had little reason to understand that they possess the power to bring salvation to other men. Because up until this point, all they've witnessed is Jesus personally declaring someone's sins forgiven. And if you accept Jesus as Lord, then that makes sense. The Lord can declare who he will forgive. It's a whole new thing, though, to consider that you've been empowered to deliver a message with equal power. Still by God's authority, no less. So it would be easy for these guys to have thought that unless Jesus personally declared someone is forgiven, they could never give anyone any assurances. But he's telling them they can these men are to become instruments of God's salvation. Paul says the same thing in Romans. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, he says, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So God's salvation is revealed from faith to to faith. As a person demonstrates faith in the message of the gospel, they reveal the power of God to save. And their faith is proof of God's work in their heart. So he's explaining to them that the citizens of the kingdom are going to be found through a similar method, but by their hand as they go out. John 24 through 31, he says, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger, see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him. 
my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I mentioned earlier only 10 of the 11 were present in that first appearing, so that left Thomas out of the experience. So here's Thomas still hesitating to believe. Now, you all know the phrase we have today, right? Doubting Thomas. I think he gets a bad rap. I mean, all the disciples were doubting. There's no difference. He's just the last one to see him. That's the only difference. Thomas hears the report of the others, demands to see proof. This goes on for seven days. For seven days, all but one of them believed. Imagine the frustration of the ten that tried that whole week. Look, friends, if ten apostles can't convince another apostle that Jesus has been resurrected, how hard is it for them to convince other people? I mean, that's really the whole point, right? On the eighth day, Jesus returns to the eleven, and we get the whole story here, you can see. He gets the same chance to inspect. And then he says, if you seeing me believe, how much more blessed will be those who are convinced without seeing? Now, the blessing he's talking about here is the blessing of God's grace poured out on people like you and me who have been granted eyes to see and ears to hear by faith. Consider it an eternal blessing that you and I are just as convinced today that this happened, that Jesus resurrected and that he really lived again. We're no less convinced than the 11 who put their hands on his body, made so because of the blessing of the spirit impressing upon our hearts the truth of the matter through the word of God. That's the eternal blessing that we have had. That's the only way anyone truly believes. So although these men ultimately became convinced by the appearances, Jesus is saying that won't be the usual method. Jesus does not intend to make personal appearances before each and every believer so that they can be convinced. In fact, after he ascends to the Father in Acts chapter 1, he will not appear again until he returns for the church at the rapture. In the meantime, those who believe by faith are blessed by definition. And with that, John essentially ends his gospel. He explains there's a lot more I could say, but he's provided enough for his readers to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by that belief in him, you have eternal life. That's the point of the gospel, and he feels he's accomplished his purpose at the end of chapter 20. So then, why do we have chapter 21? John writes it as a footnote. Chapter 21 is a footnote, a conclusion to show that these men eventually obeyed his instructions to leave the city and what came of that. But what's most interesting about chapter 21, John will combine many of the themes and storylines from the rest of the gospel and put them in chapter 21. In fact, when we go through this chapter after the break, you and I have a test. I want you to see how many of the themes and storylines from the rest of the gospel you can find in chapter 21 as we go through it. And at the very end of chapter 21, I'm going to give you the list I found.